The following message was recorded at Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. More information can be found online at Bethlehem.Church. A scripture text this morning is 1 Peter chapter 2. We're reading verses 1 through 3. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. Let's pray. Father, we do ask now that you would be watching over your word to accomplish it. We long, Lord, for the earth to be filled with the knowledge of your glory. We long for every heart listening now to the preaching of your word, to know you, to taste that you are good, to not lie about you as if you are boring, as if you are some killjoy, as if you are other than you are. Oh God, Give us eyes to see you in your glory. Give us ears to hear your voice. Give us hearts that would believe and receive and be saturated and filled up that would long more and more for your word that we would not live by bread alone but by every word that comes from your mouth. Feed us now that we might live in Jesus' name, amen. So this week we're back to our series in 1 Peter. So I'm preaching on 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 1 to 3. And at the South Campus, Dave Zuliger is preaching on 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 1 to 3. And at the North Campus, Stephen Lee is preaching on, you guessed it, 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 1 to 3. Even in these days where we have different live streams, different services, different preachers, the Word of God is our unity. It is where we look in these days. It's important to set the context in 1 Peter chapter 2. You remember from chapter 1 that we said the theme of this letter is that we are to stand in the true grace of God as elect exiles. So chapter 5, Peter says, this is the true grace of God, this letter that I'm writing to you. It's the true grace of God. Therefore, stand on it. And in chapter 1, verse 1, we learn that we are elect exiles, citizens of heaven, and therefore exiles on earth. And in the midst of this crazy world that is often set the nations raging against the Lord and against his anointed, we are to take the true grace that God has given us and stand on it. Now what's amazing about the passage that we've been looking at is it shows us this true grace of God. It shows us in the very structure of it because we have a bilateral beginning in chapter 1, verse 3, all the way to chapter 2, verse 10. You've got two sections talking about the grace of God that we have received. We have received the grace of God to become children of God and to become saved. So Peter can start in chapter 1, verses 3 through 12, and tell us all about the grace that we have received as we worship God. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope. And we have this living hope and this inexpressible joy and this profound privilege 
to be able to look at what all the prophets long to see, the coming of Jesus, the salvation that he purchased at the cross. We see more. We have experienced more of that grace. And in chapter 2, verses 4 to 10, he goes to the same message. You are the saved people of God, the spiritual house of God, spiritual priests offering spiritual sacrifices, and we are praising him, proclaiming the excellencies of him who saved us, who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. So he's saying, this is the true grace of God that you have received. Praise God for it. And in chapter 1, verses 13 to chapter 2, verse 3, he says, here's how you stand on it. Here are these commands now. You've been saved. Now become what you are. Grow up into this great salvation by hoping fully, verse 13, in the grace that will come to you when Jesus comes. Command number two, be holy because God, your Father, is holy. Command number three, fear God in your time of exile. Fear God, the impartial judge. Command number four, love one another. Verses 22 to 25. And command number five, our text today, long for the pure milk of the word that you will grow up into this great salvation that you have received. So the, the whole point is already being made by the grammar. You've been saved. Here's the grace of God. Now grow up into it. Stand on it. Become what you are. Are. So here in our passage, I want you to see and feel these four movements in verses 1 to 3. Peter is going to call us to put something away and then put something in, long for something, in order to grow up. And then he says, if, if you have tasted the goodness of of the Lord. So we're going to walk through those movements and then we'll see the main point. So look at point one in verse one where Peter calls us to put away something, lay aside something. Verse one, so put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. What's the point here? This, Peter begins with a participle, and you need to know that because this is not the point. He's saying you've got to put off something until we get to point two where you see what are you putting in. If you're going to put off something, you've got to put in something. So the putting off is the putting off of these five sins that he names. Malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander. And the word picture here, putting away, is like believers putting off, taking off the, the garments stained by the sins of their old life, the way that they used to be. I don't know if you've ever seen a farm or smelled a farm, but I grew up at times on a farm, and the worst job that I had to do was to clean out the pigsty. So sometimes people say, you know, clean your room is like a pigsty. No, it's not. It's not anything like a pigsty. I mean, it is as bad as you can think where you're cleaning up, mopping up, cleaning away pig poop. It is as bad as you can imagine and then some. And I guarantee you, when I got done cleaning the pigsty, there's nothing that I wanted more than to get that shirt off of me. That's what Peter's saying here. It has been soiled by these sins and has to be put off. That's your old life, and you need to be passionate to put these things away because you see how damaging they are. Isn't it interesting that what Peter calls us to put away are not the obvious sins like sexual immorality or drunkenness, why does he go after these 
specific sins? I think there's two answers. First, sexual immorality and drunkenness. Peter says later in the letter, you've already put those things off. They no longer mark you. In fact, he can say in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 3, the time that is past already suffices for that way that you used to live like the rest of the Gentiles, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, lawless idolatry. And he says, your former friends are surprised when you no longer join them in those things and they slander you. So here Peter's saying, I'm not calling attention to these sins because you have put those off and you're already being slandered for those. He's saying, these are sins that you may overlook, that you may underestimate, that you may tolerate, that you may take less seriously. I'm less sure that you've put these off. The second answer as to why he highlights these sins is found in the first word of our text, the word so. You see it? It's the word for therefore. Therefore, putting aside these sins. It's going back to what he said in chapter 1, verses 22 to 25, when he's talking about love one another. You've been born again by the imperishable word. Here's the word of God. This is the, the, the word that was preached to you is the gospel. So lay these things aside. These five sins are especially good at killing love. This is the opposite of loving one another. If you're going to love one another so, you need to put these sins off. Put them off. Lay them aside. You can see it even in the words that Peter chooses. In 1 Peter 1.22, he calls them to love one another with sincere brotherly love. The opposite of that word, insincerity or hypocrisy, is found there in 1 Peter 2, verse 1. So what he's saying is that if the Christian community is a garden and your soil is saturated with these five sins, love will not grow. Love will be choked out. It will be killed. So let's briefly look at each one and say, how do we put this off? Notice the first term is the term malice. It's a general word for evil that in relational context takes on this nuance of somebody that is fundamentally against another. If love means I'm for you, I want to build you up, malice says I'm against you and I want to tear you down. It's fundamentally a disposition that sees another brother or sister in Christ as being on the opposing team. Therefore, I need to work against you as opponent. How sad that Jesus died, that we would become brothers and sisters in Christ and have Jesus' heart for one another, not a heart of malice that sees you are on a different team and I must stand against you. A house divided against itself is not going to stand. Set aside malice in your heart. So that term malice now flavors all of the rest. A heart given over to malice against someone else is going to use the second term, deceit, which focuses on words or actions that are not fully honest or truthful. Words or actions that knowingly fall short of full truth because there's an ulterior motive. This is part of being against someone. You want to deceive them, to trick them. So you're not going to be truthful with them. Ultimately, deceit is part of a plot, a plot of malice against someone else. And you can use words and actions that seem to say one thing, maybe seem to be loving, but actually are deceptive and undermining. And that's part of the third term, hypocrisy. 
an inconsistency between an inward thought and an outward word or action. In other words, it is hypocritical to pretend that Christians are really for each other when they're not. So if you know Jesus' words, that you are to love one another, you know that you're my disciples, if you have love for one another, if you know that the call is to love and then you pretend, you're play acting, you're acting kind and loving even while actively undermining, that is hypocrisy. Jesus accused the Pharisees of religious hypocrisy meaning you're pretending to be devoted to God, but you're doing all these things out of a devotion to yourself, that you would look good, that you would be honored. Peter is saying you're using, there's this inconsistency, you're pretending that you're actually loving your brothers and sisters, but it's a game, it's a sham, it's pretend. You're really sowing rivalry, discord, and dissension. And therefore the fourth term, envy, is a prominent term in lists that also have malice. Because malice, a heart that's against somebody, if you see somebody as being on the opposing team, then envy makes perfect sense that you're going to weep when they succeed and rejoice when they fail. If they're on the opposing team. The only way you win is if they lose. And the fifth term, slander, is often the overflow of malice. The the attempt to tear someone else down. A verbal assault on their character and on their person in untrue and unfair ways. And in all of these ways, these five ways, these sins kill community. Think about some of the sinister ways they come together. You can be deceptive in someone's presence by saying nice things to them and yet be a hypocrite because outside of that person's presence you talk behind their back or you slander them, you say all kinds of nasty things about them, maybe slanting the truth, maybe trumping up the things that are against them, trying to make people think less of them, criticizing them, complaining about them when they're absent and not there to defend themselves. And in Christian communities, this deceit can be even more sinister because you use prayer like gossip cloaking your lack of concern for them by saying you're concerned or bringing it up in a prayer request. Peter is saying these sins must be put off, put away, far from the Christian community that's called to love one another. But ultimately, it's a participle because he's saying not just, it's not enough to put these things away, unless you put something else in. And that's what he says in verse two. Like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk. There's a word play here, taking us from verse one to verse two, because the deceit being practiced in verse one, Adelon, the opposite of it is the pure, unadulterated, dalon word of God. The only way that you're gonna remove deceit from your midst is to fill up with the pure, unadulterated, unmixed word of God, pure in every part. Notice this verse has a main verb, a command, long for the pure spiritual milk. This command is actually a desire, long for, crave, desire strongly. Are you surprised that God can command a desire? Does it seem somewhat strange at first glance as if you think it's not a light switch, I can't turn on or turn off my longings. 
But that's not true. Because if you look at the first part, he says, like newborn infants. Meaning, let's go back to what God has already done. He's already, chapter one, verse three, caused you to be born again to a living hope. Chapter one, verse 23, you're already born again of imperishable seed, the word of God. He's already done something in your life to make you long for this milk. The most natural thing in the world is for newborn babies to want their mother's milk. That's the most natural thing in the world. Have you ever seen this? As a dad, sometimes I actually got to have the the milk in the bottle and feed one of my daughters, and they loved this milk. And if they didn't have it and couldn't get it, they would let you know. There's lots of ways that they can intensely let you know that they want this. And sometimes it was the worst when I wouldn't have the milk ready, and so I would try like to distract them. Oh, they weren't having it. I would try to have water maybe in a bottle, and they would start sucking on that and think for a moment, oh, this is the milk. And then when they realized they'd been tricked, and this was water and not milk, they would scream to high heaven. The most natural thing in the world is for babies to cry, to long for their mother's milk. Peter is saying, that's what's happened to you, Christian. If you've been born of God, born by the imperishable word, the most natural evidence of the fact that you've been saved is that you're gonna long for the spiritual milk. He's saying this is a metaphor, not literal milk. The spiritual milk of the word of God. You will demand it. You will cry out for it. You will not be content with anything else. The word of God is pure food from our Father. Absolutely essential if we're going to be holy as he is holy, is to take this in like Jesus prayed. Sanctify them in your truth. John 17, 17. Your word is truth. You're not going to be able to do any of these other commands to be holy, to hope fully, to fear your Father, to love one another unless you are filled with his holy word. If we are going to love one another in ways that accord with the holiness of God, he's saying you must put away the things that will kill that and drink in the things that will cause it to flourish. And what is this word? Peter tells us, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 25, this word is the good news that was preached to you. So he's saying this, this is the word of God in general, but specifically the word of God is showing you the gospel of God. And as you drink that in, what will happen? Point three, you will grow. You will grow up. Verse two, that by it you may grow up into salvation. If it is the most natural thing in the world for babies to long for their mother's milk, it is the most unnatural thing for them to drink that and not grow. For someone to stay a baby. It would be unheard of, unthinkable. That doesn't even fit. If you're eating and drinking, you're going to be growing. Peter's saying the same thing. If you're a newborn born again, born of God, believer, you're gonna long for the word of God and that's gonna cause you to grow up into this salvation, into this work that God has done. You're gonna become what you are as you drink in God's word. So the point of this whole passage is born again believers will long, must long for the pure milk of the word to become what they are, to grow up into salvation. This must happen if you've been born again. And there's ways 
to cultivate it. Just like the father of the demon-possessed boy said, I believe, help my unbelief, we can say, I long, help my longing. How do you cultivate this longing? Let me speak to fathers for a moment. Fathers, what is it that marks your life? What is it that people know about you? Normally what I find, and it's fine to have hobbies, I notice that people tend to be known by what they know. So you know, well, this father is really into cars. He can tell you all about this engine. This father, he's really into hunting. He can tell you all about this gauge shotgun or this assault rifle or whatever. This guy is really into whatever, and he can tell you all about it. I wonder, Father, I wonder if you are leading your family, setting the pace in terms of knowing more of the gospel than you know more of anything else. Loving and longing for the gospel more than you love or long for anything else. What do you want to share with your family most? Are you the kind of person that knows Jesus so personally, so filled up that the word of God dwell richly in you that it feels like when you talk about Jesus, You're not talking about a person you've never met. It's almost as if you're saying, hey, I know this person really well. Let me take you to him and introduce you to him. What is the greatest thing that you could give to others, that you could give to yourself. It is this intimate knowledge of the word of God, the highest compliment that Spurgeon could pay the Puritan John Bunyan is to say his blood flowed bibline, meaning if you poke him anywhere, he will bleed Bible. I say this to all of you. If you were to be poked, and it seems like we're getting poked a lot in 2020, what's bleeding out? Politics? frustration, opinions, or is it the word of God? Is it the Lord Jesus that just keeps coming out when we get poked because we're drinking it in? Now, here's my question. If we're going to pray, I long help my longing, help my lack of longing, how do you grow in this? How do you increase this desire? Is it just about becoming really disciplined? I've got nothing against discipline. We could all use a little bit more discipline, but Peter's answer is that you're going to long more if you delight more. Not disinterested devotion, discipline. Look at point four. Why will you long like this and grow up like this? You will if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. You will long more if you're tasting and seeing and delighting more and more. You will long more and more. That's what Peter's saying. He's using the word if here in a way in the Greek language that's assuming, yes, you have. You're you're longing for this because, yes, you have tasted that the Lord is good. But he's not simply saying you all have, certainly. He's using the word if in order to ask us, force us to consider whether or not we have tasted his kindness and goodness. What I find is that not many people have to be told to eat. Not many people have to be told, now quit skipping meals and eat. There's sometimes it happens. But if you really like food and are hungry, you're going to take time, make time to eat, especially if you're tasting something that you love, 
what happens is a lot of times you start asking for seconds, ask for more. I've told you the story of my kids. That was the easy thing to teach them. When they tasted something that they loved and we were teaching them sign language, man, the first thing they learned was the word for more. That's what Peter's saying. If you have tasted the delight of the Lord, that he's good, and you notice that the the word of the Lord gives you the Lord, you taste and see the goodness of the Lord in the word of the Lord, you're going to be saying this more. This is an allusion to Psalm 34, verse 8. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. I love that word, oh. All it is, is it's a word for exclamation. It's not enough for the psalmist to say, you know, the Lord's pretty good. Taste and see, he's not bland. Oh, taste and see how good the Lord is. Unless you think that he just haphazardly quotes here from Psalm 34, this is profound. This psalm, he's going to quote three verses of it later in 1 Peter 3. But the theme of the psalm is that the righteous can be confident that God will deliver them even when they're afflicted, even when they're suffering. The whole context of this, the superscription says, is when David changed his behavior before Abimelech so that he drove him out and he went away. David's on the run from Absalom, remember? He's outside of the promised land now. He's with Abimelech, a foreign ruler, and Peter is saying, this is you, Christian. You're not in the promised land. You're you're citizens of heaven, exiles on earth among foreign rulers, and you can trust the Lord in the midst of this The psalmist says you set your hope in God. Psalm 33, 9, 34, 9, and 23, just like 1 Peter 1, 13. Fear the Lord, Psalm 34, verse 10, just like 1 Peter 1, 17. And most interesting for me of all, verse 4 in Hebrew says this, I sought the Lord and he answered me. He delivered me from all my fears. Well, fears about what? The Greek translation in the Septuagint translates it this way. I sought the Lord, and he answered me and delivered me from all my sojournings. All the fear that I have while in exile, while away from the promised land, while feeling extra alone and vulnerable, I can hope in the Lord. I can turn to the Lord. And tasting the sweetness and goodness of the Lord is even more meaningful in hostile settings. When fears rise, I find the goodness of the Lord is food for my soul. So he has given us new taste buds that taste the beauty and kindness and goodness of the Lord. And Peter says, when you do that, you do this. Say more, Lord, more of your word. So let me, let me apply this this way. There's a quote from a commentator that I read this week that I found so powerful. Quote, Peter is explaining in this letter how social alienation that the Christian experiences from society is to be remedied by the genuine fellowship found within the community of believers. Let me translate that for you into normal English. What they're saying is that while you are an exile on earth, feeling alienated and persecuted by the world, feeling like, I don't fit here, the solution for that alienation is to find community with the family of God, to find love within the family of God. So how devilish is it when the the family of God becomes alienated from itself over worldly ideas? No longer feeling alienation from the world because you're borrowing worldly ideas, you find alienation from the people of God. Exactly the opposite. 
of what Peter's calling for. So quickly, what I want to do is I want to warn us. I want to warn us because sometimes after my girls started getting bigger, they didn't just have milk from their mom, but we added formula from a can. And I started thinking as I was praying this week, what, what are some, what's some formula that we're supplementing or adding? Do we know what's in that container? Are we bringing in worldly supplements that are dividing the family of faith rather than uniting us by drinking in the word? So I want to have two warnings for what I see as worldly formula, both from the left and the ditch from the right. I'll give two examples on each side. I'm going to be an equal opportunity offender. Nobody will probably be happy with this. First, on the left side, what I find sometimes is that there are people who are unknowingly taking in formula that's laced with worldly assumptions and worldly solutions. For example, I'm thinking here of critical race theory, where you have people divided according to categories of power. So maybe a white man has more power than a a white woman who has more power than a black man, black woman, and then they go to black woman, transgender. what, What ends up happening is that there can be truth in description and analysis of what's happening in the world that somebody can experience multiple levels of oppression. Yes, it's true. But the assumptions and the solutions that you bring to it are not biblical. They're worldly. For example, I've heard now from several people using this definition that they use, prejudice plus power equals racism. Prejudice plus power equals racism. And what they want to say, therefore, is that a black man or a black woman, black people, can't be racist because they don't have power. And the problem with that, and this is helpful when I tell people this, and the light bulbs tend to go on, it seems, James 2 defines partiality as a matter of the heart that all people can commit. And then if you want to add the the word power to that, it is true that when prejudice, when you add power to it, that's where you get the most destructive versions of racism. So in our country, 400 years of oppression, we can't just overlook That was power being used against black people. It's true. But is it true that black people can't be racist? In our day and age, I've seen this, I've talked to people who have been falsely accused of racism by somebody, by an African American, and they lose their job or their reputation is tarnished. Now, that accusation, if you take verse 1 seriously, that there can be malice and slander and deceit, that could be true or untrue. And therefore, them getting fired could be fair or unfair. My point is, that's power. That's power at work that all of us could commit. We could have malice. We could have slander. Those are power things that turn against people. And the Bible says we all must beware of it. Or second category on the left. Beware of the formula, the worldly formula, that unknowingly slips in and wants to deconstruct biblical morality and what God calls the family to be. Here I'm thinking in terms of the controversial phrase, black lives matter. Now, personally, I think we need to go out of our way in every way possible to affirm the truth of that statement that black people are made in the image of God, just like every other ethnicity, and matter. 
matter to God, it should be even more intensely that we believe that because we believe something more glorious. They don't just have worth because they're human. They have worth because they're human made in the image of God. So we believe it even more. But I have talked to people who didn't know that that statement was part of an organization, Black Lives Matter, and an LGBTQ agenda, and they just didn't know. So in this regard, let's be careful that we're actually affirming biblical truth and not taken on a ride on some agenda with assumptions and solutions that aren't biblical. And I'm gonna come back to that in a minute after I'm done with the second two. There's worldly formula being added, I think, on the right that we need to be aware of, and I wanna call it nationalism. This is where I experience this. There are some people who I think your categories can be formed not just biblically but politically such that you see everything as opponents politically, meaning you're afraid to talk about, for example, race issues because you may be labeled a Democrat or abortion issues because you may be labeled a Republican. And just can we agree that it's not really the big deal if you're Republican or Democrat, but if you're biblical or unbiblical, like that's what we care about? And when I criticized President Obama, for example, for abortion policies, I didn't get any negative emails, ever. The minute I said something about the current president, Donald Trump, and a statement, a slogan, like, make America great again, and I just pointed out, hey, let's just be aware, that's really offensive to especially African Americans who are saying, when was it great? when we were in slavery. I immediately got labeled, you're a Democrat, you're un-American, and I'm just looking at this like, I'm trying to be biblical, I'm trying to be loving. So here, let's just be clear. I am, and you are called to be, a political exile. Meaning, as an exile on earth and a citizen of heaven, we can speak prophetically as political exiles to both political parties when they're not biblical. We can do that. And we can make sense of this country by not being polarized into saying it was all good or it was all bad. The Bible gives us categories for the complexity of America to say some things were good, some things were bad. The psalmist could look at Israel's history, for example, and say, God intervened, his steadfast love was there, Psalm 136, and you're telling all the good things that God did. In another psalm, like Psalm 78, it's telling all about Israel's disobedience and rebellion. Which one is true? That's a terrible question. They're both true. And we cannot let people co-opt biblical terms. And we can't let people co-opt like political agendas and say, this is right. Religious liberty is not a conservative issue, it's a biblical issue. Racial inequality is not a liberal issue, it's a biblical issue. Abortion is not a conservative issue, it's a biblical issue. Sex trafficking is a biblical issue. We care about every injustice. And we're not worried that by saying we're, we're against this injustice, we're gonna be labeled this over here, or vice versa. We simply cannot let biblical words be co-opted and put into some political grinder and say, well, you should be suspicious about this word, for example, justice. How can anybody get a distaste in their mouth for just the word justice? If you create this label, social justice warrior, and suddenly you're suspicious of all justice. 
Justice is part of the heart of God. Righteousness and justice, the Bible say, are the foundation of his throne. And therefore, we care about every injustice and we care about the Christian community and we refuse to begin having malice towards one another. I read this last week about a study that was done. Malcolm Gladwell in the book Talking to Strangers said this is what can happen when you view somebody as a stranger, like the other. There was a a test that was done where you had to take letters and fill in the blank. So you started off with GL blank blank and some people put glad, some people put glum, or you got another one. T-O-U blank blank. Some people put tough, some people put touch, and then you had to look at all of your answers. And people would get this, even the author said, and I had glum and I had all these words like tired and whatever, and it's like it didn't even fit me. Like I'm not a glum person. People say I'm upbeat and happy, and like this, it didn't fit. But then they would show the tests that other people took and they could immediately jump to conclusions. Oh, this person has to be an athlete. Look, they put goal and winner and all these things. So in one camp, you've got yourself and you feel like, I'm very sophisticated and I can't be pinned down by tests like this. But in the human heart, there's a tendency to think, but other people are not sophisticated. They're simpletons. It's easy. I can tell you all about them based on this one thing. Can we agree that if one Christian says black lives matter, it doesn't mean, oh, therefore, you're the kind of person that doesn't know this and affirms this and you're this kind, or if you voted Republican, well, that means you're this person and you must have all of this. Can we agree that we can hold biblical truths in tension when it comes to politics? and that we don't have to have malice and strife and dissension and discord and rush to judgments about people based on one thing? Here's what I believe all Christians need to be able to say in these divisive times. Yes, we care about every injustice, especially injustice against God. What we want to give people more than anything else is not just earthly justice. It's not just that we want to have good political leaders. It's it's like what Chuck Colson said when Ronald Reagan came and was voted in. He he said to his supporters, let's just all remember, the kingdom of God does not arrive on Air Force One. Let's agree that some of these things we're talking about can be good, but it should not poison our trust. We can engage in politics without trusting in politics. We can engage in justice issues without hoping in political systems and policies. And we can agree what the world needs most what the biggest problem in the world is, is that so many people are enemies of the cross under the wrath of God and that injustice and blasphemy is being committed against him everywhere. Jesus is the only one who was never guilty of envy and malice and slander and all these things, they actually were put against him. Mark 15, 10, it was out of envy that they delivered him over. There was no deceit found in his mouth. Even when he was being reviled, he didn't revile back in return. He died for every injustice and sin we committed against God. And therefore... Pastor Kempton did a great analogy here. He said, imagine if you have this fish, this dying fish, and all of the world is looking at this fish and saying, here's what he needs. 
here's what he needs. He needs this. He needs a little bit of justice or he needs a, a little bit of, of this policy or he needs a little bit of this. And you could say it even if you're a teenager right now. The fish needs a little bit of Instagram or the newest iPhone or whatever. There's all of these worldly analysis and solutions about this dying fish. And what we believe most of all and what we're most passionate about is that what that fish needs most is water. And what we need most is the gospel of Jesus Christ as the only hope, the only way that we're gonna be saved, the only way we're gonna make it to the place where everything is made new and all wrongs are made right. What we need most of all in these times is unity in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, I'm asking now, I'm asking that we would not be cynical about the power of the gospel, the power of the word of God, not just to change hearts, but to bring justice. The power of the gospel to bring reconciliation, the power of the gospel to bring people together that normally would never come together because only Jesus has the power to change the heart and make his people one. So God, I'm asking that you would remove all malice and envy and slander and deceit and that you would fill us with the word of God and unite us under the banner of the Lordship of Christ. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without written permission from Bethlehem Baptist Church. For more information, we invite you to visit us online at Bethlehem.Church or write us at 720 13th Avenue South, Minneapolis, Minnesota, 55415. Bethlehem Baptist Church, spreading a passion for the supremacy of God in all things, for the joy of all peoples, through Jesus Christ.